On Monday morning, Americans woke up to a horrific scene unfolding at the Kabul airport. Desperate people surrounded planes as they tried to take off, begging to be let on board. Crowds tried to block the runway, clinging onto the side of a U.S. military plane as it started moving. A video showed what appears to be someone falling from the air as a plane takes off. All in a frantic attempt to escape Afghanistan. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, August 16th. Kabul has fallen. The Taliban has taken control of the capital. The Afghan president has fled. And more U.S. forces are being sent in to protect the airport and evacuate foreign citizens and Afghan allies. Later in the show, we'll hear how the Biden administration is trying to salvage this crisis. I am president of the United States of America, and the buck stops with me. But first, we take you on the ground in Kabul, where we're seeing those heart-wrenching scenes of desperation. What happened today at the airport is very different from the kind of worst-case scenarios that people were fearing in the lead-up to the end of the U.S. Um, troop withdrawal. And, and that, that gun, I don't know if you guys can hear that in the background, but that gunfire is just um, people firing up in the air, crowd control. Earlier today, we spoke with the Post-Cobble Bureau Chief Susanna George. She is one of the American journalists who are still there, and she has a firsthand account of what it's like in Kabul watching panicked evacuations as the Taliban takes complete control. As it became clear that the Taliban were going to move on Kabul, people from all over the country started just descending on the airport. And then once the Taliban took over Kabul, the security forces in the entire city melted away overnight. And that includes the security forces at the airport. So that allowed these thousands of people to push onto the runway and physically stop planes from taking off and landing. So right now, um, what we have is two days of no civilian or military flights in and out of the Kabul airport. So in terms of the evacuations that are happening at the airport, do U.S. troops retain control of the airport and do they have an unlimited amount of time to get people out of there? Or is there a concern that at some point in the next few days they won't be able to even safely get people in and out of of the airport? Yeah. So what we saw today is because there were no security forces at the airport, there was there were no immigration officials at the airport today. So right now it's unclear if the airport is going to be usable tomorrow. What would be needed to make that happen is for some forces of some kind to step up and maintain security. The people who I spoke to who were at the airport, they were like, this was the ultimate act of betrayal because, you know, not only had provincial capitals leading up to this fallen without a shot fired, but Kabul itself fell to the Taliban with hardly a shot fired. And a lot of people, you know, not only felt abandoned by their own government, I think probably felt more abandoned by the United States. Yeah, I'm curious about that feeling of for people who see a 
a window getting smaller and smaller of the chances that they'll be able to leave safely, how they're feeling about the U.S. departure. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it just really highlighted how desperate a certain section of the Afghan population is feeling right now when the complete U.S. withdrawal is fewer than two weeks away. The entire country pretty much is controlled by the Taliban. And a lot of the Afghan security forces who I have spent a lot of time working with and embedding with and traveling around the country with, you know, they were calling me and saying, I'm taking off my uniform and I'm going to, I'm just putting on civilian clothes because I don't trust my higher ups to make the right calls to protect me. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, you saw like the highest ranking officials in the entire government pretty much just capitulate in the face of this uh, Taliban advance. And why is that? Like, why is it that, as you say, the Afghan special forces essentially melted away when the Taliban started to come into Kabul? This has been something that I've talked to these guys about a lot over the course of, you know, more than a year now, because they're incredibly capable. They've been very well trained. The United States has invested a lot of time into working with them. But the thing is, is once you start to take away those U.S. capabilities and that U.S. support, they can't function at the level that they were before because their leadership is now the Afghan or was the Afghan military leadership, which had a lot more bureaucracy, had a lot more corruption, had a lot more commanders who were on the ground level who wanted to make themselves look good. So they weren't telling commanders who were above them the real story. So, you know, the actual facts of what happened in a certain battle didn't make it up to the top. And so lessons weren't learned. And these guys, like, they were smart enough to recognize that. And they're incredibly frustrated. You know, one idea that's being litigated right now, at least in how Americans are talking about this, is what does this current crisis say about the U.S. pulling out of Afghanistan, about the way that the U.S. pulled out, but also the decision by Biden to to pull out in, in the first place and whether that was the right decision. And I wonder what your read is on that, seeing the state of things right now about how the U.S. navigated this withdrawal. Oh, that's a really difficult question to answer because part of me, you know, my, my heart breaks for the people who are at the airport today who are scrambling to get on planes because unless there's a dramatic change in Taliban policy, a lot of people's lives are going to be in danger now that the Taliban are in power in Afghanistan. But at the same time, I know even the people who are in the most danger from the Taliban coming back into power, they never wanted the United States to stay here forever. They're very patriotic people. You know, they wanted to be able to stand on their own two feet. Also, another group of Afghans who we I feel like we haven't heard enough from and we don't hear enough from who, you know, could not wait for the United States to leave and for the Taliban to just be, you know, the, the only game in town because, you know, these are people who are mostly living in rural areas And when you talk to people in rural areas and you ask them, you know, what has U.S. involvement in Afghanistan brought you? They say night raids, airstrikes, casualties, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, family members being hurt. 
And that's like a sharp contrast to what you see in the cities where we don't know if this is going to continue, but what um, the U.S. presence brought to cities in Afghanistan was, you know, an expansion of women's rights, uh, you know, an expansion of media. The urban Afghans who I've spoken to over the past few days, um, that's what they're really lamenting is just this fear of kind of going back to the 1990s. Susanna, I'm wondering how you're feeling as you consider the possibility that you might have to leave Kabul for your safety. Well, so we're preparing for the possibility that I'll have to leave. And um, um, it's, it's definitely something that's very difficult for me because of what went wrong with this conflict was truth not being told and witness not being bared to the entire country, you know, just focusing on Kabul, just focusing on urban areas, just focusing on this small subset of the elite. Hmm. And at this like really critical turning point to then, you know, pull out and um, um, limit what we can see even more than what was even the case, you know, a few months ago when I was still able to travel to provinces. It just, it, it, it just, it feels like it kind of goes against a lot of what I believe journalism is about, but at the same time, it's an incredibly, uh, you know, fluid and unpredictable situation that could become very dangerous very quickly. But yeah, no, it's um, yeah, it's heart wrenching for me because something that I've tried to keep as like central to the work that I've done here is amplifying voices that often go unheard, and the idea of like all Western journalists or the vast majority of Western journalists pulling out of Afghanistan means that there's just going to be so many more voices that we're not hearing. And I can't imagine how that could possibly um, positively inform future policy decisions. It just seems like a recipe for disaster. Susanna George is the Kabul bureau chief for The Post. The story was produced by Alexis Diao. After the break, we'll hear what President Biden had to say late this afternoon about the crisis unfolding in Kabul. We'll be right back. I'm clear on my answer. I will not repeat the mistakes we've made in the past. Mistake of staying and fighting indefinitely in a conflict that is not in the national interest of the United States, of doubling down on a civil war in a foreign country, of attempting to remake a country through the endless military deployments of U.S. forces. Those are the mistakes we cannot continue to repeat because we have significant vital interest in the world that we cannot afford to ignore. 
Late afternoon on Monday, in a speech from the White House, President Biden said that he still stands squarely behind his decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. The U.S. is planning to remove thousands of Americans from the country in the next few days, along with vulnerable Afghan allies. And if the Taliban attempts to interfere with those evacuations, Biden said that there will be, quote, severe consequences. But ultimately, he blamed the chaos of the withdrawal on Afghans themselves. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed, sometime without trying to fight. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. What's clear now is that this was not the departure from Afghanistan that U.S. officials wanted. Politically, I think we're close to a worst-case scenario with the caveat that this could still get much worse. Dan Lamoth covers the Pentagon and the U.S. military for The Post. He has been reporting on the military's efforts to secure the airport and resume evacuations. But there's still an open question. How many people will U.S. troops end up evacuating? I think there are two answers to that question. The the true answer is as many as they can. The answer on the books is probably in the tens of thousands. There are several different categories of people here that they're trying to get to. First, there are the U.S. Embassy staff members, Americans, also some Afghans and others, presumably at some point. There's another category called SIVs, Special Immigrant Visa Applicants. These are people that mostly served as interpreters as well as some other jobs for the U.S. government. They all have a target on their back based on their service to the U.S. government over the years. There is somewhere in the neighborhood of about twenty to 30,000 people potentially eligible for that category, each of which likely would come with three or four family members. So just rough math, you know, that's 80,000, 90,000 people potentially already. And then there is a third category of people who have served as journalists, as, uh, you know, advocates of various kinds people pushing for women's rights and other things who don't fit into one of those categories cleanly. But presumably, the United States is going to try and get at least some of them out as well. You know, I saw National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on NBC on Sunday, and it just really struck me that he described this as not a worst case scenario or was sort of defending why, in the views of the Biden administration, that this was a withdrawal that needed to go forward. Actually, Savannah, I think the worst case scenario for the United States would be a circumstance in which we were adding back in thousands and thousands of troops to fight and die in a civil war in Afghanistan when the Afghan army wasn't prepared to fight in it itself. That was the alternative choice Joe Biden faced. But I wonder, like, how did the U.S. government so dramatically miscalculate how quickly the Taliban would be able to take control of Kabul? Because 
just a few weeks ago, we were having conversations saying that uh, the likelihood that Kabul would fall was somewhat remote or that it would take months and months. And it's happened so much faster than the forecast that we saw. Yes, I, I think they've got some egg on their face with that one for sure. This is something that, that will be a part of the Biden administration legacy. There's a lot of discussion, and frankly, the majority of Americans agree with him when you look at polling, that getting out of Afghanistan was the right call. But there are a lot of ways you can do that. And there were calls months ago from lawmakers in both parties, from advocacy groups, from other people, from U.S. combat veterans who had been there that said, okay, perhaps it's time to do this. If we're going to do this, we need to be getting the Afghans who have assisted us for years out immediately. We need to start this very soon. That was back in April and May. The Biden administration didn't announce a full plan for doing this until July. Mm. Those flights didn't start till just a couple weeks ago. As of Saturday and Sunday, there were less than 2,000 of these special immigrant visas that had been carried out and left the country. There are tens of thousands more. I don't see how they can say they have control of this situation. And what are other countries doing right now to try to get people out? We're seeing a lot of the longtime American partners and allies start to move in the direction of trying to do more. Canada, in particular, has said that they'll take on thousands of people. Great Britain actually sent troops back in. They presumably are going to be doing more. France has stepped up and said they're going to do more. Germany, the same. Where this is going to get complicated in coming months is when you're looking at this large of a humanitarian crisis, there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people, they're going to be looking for a new home. And you're going to run into all those classic questions of where are these people allowed to settle? Are they allowed to stay? Do they get sent back? And this is going to be a question for numerous countries to wrestle with. You mentioned the UK, and I saw an interview with the British Defense Secretary, Ben Wallace, in which he got pretty emotional talking about the fate of the people who are going to be left behind. It's a really deep part of regret for me. Um, some people won't get back. Some people won't get back. And um, we will have to uh, do our best in third countries to process these people. And I think for many Americans, the visuals that we're seeing really bring to mind the end of the Vietnam War, where we saw these chaotic scenes of evacuation, the last flight out of Saigon. Does this strike you as Vietnam on repeat? I add it up and I think I've got about eight months on the ground in Afghanistan spread out over about a dozen trips. I've had those conversations. I've even written stories that have had those headlines as long as two years ago, where Marines that I had stayed in touch with were wrestling with that debate even prior to the images we're seeing now. I think once we've hit what we've hit over the last couple of days, the parallel is not that much of a stretch at all. And in fact, we run the risk that it could be worse. When you look at Vietnam, we actually rescued close to 200,000 people, allies that had served alongside U.S. troops back in that conflict. Hmm. You know, and they, had, they actually had about two years between the peace deals being signed in that conflict and then the fall of Saigon two years later. Wow. It, it, all of that has been compressed here. And it just seems like they got cut flat footed. And how does this swift fall of Kabul change the thinking on whether Biden's decision to withdraw troops was actually the right choice in the first place? There's a few camps of people here. There's the group that still think it's the right call and are just angry over how it was botched. The what ifs on, on what if they had started rescuing people earlier 
What if they had communicated this differently? What if they had, I think, a greater sense of urgency on a number of levels? Another group of people, they're sort of playing I told you so, saying that, you know, of course we knew it was going to be this bad. It was a matter of time. If we'd have done it 10 years ago, it would have looked just like it does today. I think that, that that's another constituency, and, and it's really hard to say whether or not they're right or not. There's a third camp here that would have preferred to follow the recommendations of military commanders and others, keep a small force in Afghanistan going forward. The outgoing U.S. commander, General Scott Miller, had recommended to both the Trump administration and then again to the Biden administration to leave a small force of a couple thousand behind. The idea being that one that sort of sends a message that the United States is still there. It allows the United States to continue to carry out airstrikes in at least limited circumstances. It also kind of props up as a symbolic gesture, this Afghan government that really had a lot of corruption and flaws throughout. I mean, the reality is as soon as you pulled out the U.S. military, the Taliban made their moves. They cut deals on the battlefield. Afghan commanders stood down. You know, they laid down their arms. There are a number of reasons for that. The Taliban has a very potent battlefield force at this point. A second element of this is the Afghan soldiers on the rank and file level who have been on the battlefield for years in some cases, who aren't being fed well, who aren't being paid in a lot of cases on a regular basis, if at all. And some of these battles, they couldn't even keep up with getting them the ammunition they needed. Like that is very serious problems within the Afghan force that we spent billions of dollars training. So one thing that I've heard in the last few weeks is this idea that the Taliban of today is very different from the Taliban of the 90s and that they could lead differently in the future. What does this moment mean for what life will be like for people in Kabul and Afghanistan in the coming weeks and months? When I look at this, there's what the Taliban is saying, which is sort of this is not your father's Taliban kind of idea, that they're going to have a softer touch. Then you look at the reports that we've been seeing from places like Mazi Sharif and Kandahar. They're still carrying out atrocities. They're still already forcing women to do things they don't want to do. Even after people retreat or give up on the battlefield, there have been atrocities. I think the Taliban right now, my read would be that they are more politically savvy. They're more online. They have a pretty potent social media presence, but I don't fundamentally see a whole lot of differences yet. I think there's a hope, maybe a, a misplaced hope or a small hope that they might be at least somewhat more gentle, particularly in a Kabul where millions of people do live and have been much more bothered than the Afghan countryside. But on, on whole, I, I think it's a stretch to think we're going to see that. Dan Lamoth covers the Pentagon and the U.S. military for The Post. Sabi Robinson produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Rennie Svernovsky. As the withdrawal in Afghanistan continues, we want to hear from veterans or anyone who made sacrifices for the Afghan war effort. Whether you're American or Afghan, whether you served in the coalition, or if you had friends or family who did, we want to know your thoughts. What do you feel like you sacrificed in the war? And how do you feel about that sacrifice now? 
send us your responses or even better, record a voice memo. Email that to postreports at washpost.com. We look forward to hearing from you. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.